I love roadmaps. A lot of you do too. We've talked about it before. I like the old kind where you unfold them and then do your best to fold them back and you use them to help you see not just where you are, but where you're going and how to get there. I like that in my own personal life. How do I get to from where I am to where I want to be and where God wants me to be? And how do we do that within our church? And how do we do that as a country? How do we have an awakening? What's the road now for getting there? So today we're going to look at the early life of the prophet, priest, and judge named Samuel and see what he used and how we can use the same elements to get to where God wants us to be. Our scripture today is 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's a, it's a blessing, it's an encouragement, it's a help because here's what we know about the Bible. We know it's true. We know it comes from God, but sometimes we forget that part of that truth is that it is true to life, that it fits who we are. It fits the things that we go through in life. And of all the passages in the Bible that, that shows that it is true to life, I think this is the, the greatest one of all that simply speaks to who we are and what we go through in life. So as we follow along, I hope you'll see that. The, the, the hurt, the pain, the grief that comes in life, the, the jealousy, the, the difficulty that people face. It is 1 Samuel chapter 1. These events occurred about 3,000 years ago. The first two verses are going to be filled with hard names. Sometimes we get to hard names in the Bible and we say, I just don't think I want to go on with that. But people in Louisiana should not have a problem with hard names. So follow along as we read, and let's let God speak to us through his word. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroboam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, the man went up from the, his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever they came, the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the sacrifice to his wife 
Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, the other wife, what an interesting name, her rival would would keep provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. I always look at verse 8. I think about husbands. I think about myself. Sometimes we just simply don't get it. He didn't get it. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you down, downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Eli, the priest, was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the house of the Lord. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give me a son, then I will give him to you, the Lord, for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she wept, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli, mistaking the situation completely, thought that she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. It's not hard to see the anguish in all of this. The hurt and the pain from having two wives instead of a monogamous relationship. The pain of wanting a child and not being able to have a child. And for that to go on and on for years. Every year at Mother's Day, we 
we, we try to do our best to get it right. That is to celebrate mothers. After all, the Bible tells us to do that. Honor your father and your mother. But we also know that there are women, there are wives who have the pain of not having children. And we know that there are whole families who have the pain of having lost a child. I, I say every time that, that I try to help somebody through this. Of all the things that I deal with and trying to help other people, there is nothing like the loss of a child, either a little child or it may be a 50-year-old child. The family hurts so deeply. And this passage of Scripture shows the true-to-life nature of of Holy Scripture, of how God understands who we are and what we're going through. So when you look at a passage like this, you, you see that there's real hurt here and there is there's some things that I need to learn, that I need to know because I want to be able to deal with the hurts and the pains of life. And we look at a passage like this and we recognize that, that I'm not where I want to be. How do I get from where I am to where God wants me to be? How do I get to where I want to be? And how is we, do we as a church, as the family of God, as the people of God, how do we get to the point of where he wants us to be as his family. Well, let's look at this passage and let, let's talk about some things that we can learn from this. And what do we need to do? Four things that I identify, but the first one is the one that I want to spend the most time on. Because this passage of Scripture tells us the power of praying fervently, of pouring out our soul before the Lord. Of all the definitions I know of prayer, that is my most helpful definition. What does it mean to pray? It means to pour out your soul before God. It means to tell God where you are and what you're going through and what you are experiencing in life. And this is so true to life. We all want our prayers to be answered instantaneously. We always want God to do whatever we want and to do it immediately. I want it that way. You want it that way. We expect that to happen. The story of Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah was one of deep grief and pain. And year by year, they would go up to the, the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they would worship God one, at least one time in the year. And every year they went up, you have the same pain that Hannah experienced. And there was rivalry, and there was jealousy, and there was grief. And though the Bible doesn't tell you that, that Hannah prayed every year, you, you almost can read it in the background that of course she would have done that because everybody prays. Even people who don't know God pray. One of the strangest things I ever read was the the. the 
the, the report that when you do a study that even atheists pray. So when life gets tough, we look for something or someone who is bigger than we are. Everybody prays, and year by year, Hannah would pray. And then finally, there came that dramatic, climactic year in which she stood and she prayed. And Eli, sitting at the doorpost of the house of the Lord, observed her and made a completely wrong conclusion. And he made the wrong conclusion because that's the only way he knew to think about that. Amazingly, in their day, 3,000 years ago, they prayed out loud and did not pray quietly in their heart. Here we are 3,000 years later, and our dominant way of praying is to pray quietly in our heart and not out loud. So when Eli saw her, he just jumped to a conclusion. There's something wrong. No one prays this way. She is praying in her heart. Her lips are moving. There's no voice. He assumes that she's drunk. And she says, no, my Lord, I am a woman of grief, and I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. How much you and I need to pour out our souls before the Lord. About ourselves. About our need to change. About our need to confess our sin and repent of our sin. How much do we need to pour out our souls before the Lord, asking God to work in our lives, asking God to bless his church? I hope you will learn to pray for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church around the world. But I, I hope that you will learn to pray for this local body of believers that we would be what God wants us to be, that we would be faithful to his word, that we would preach his word, that we would live for him and honor him and show the love of God to the people around us. I hope that it, the day will come that you pray fervently. You pour out your soul for lost people that they would know God, that their lives would be changed, that they would experience the hope that comes from knowing him. There is power in prayer. I, I hope that you will be praying for change in America, that there would be an awakening that there would be a powerful turning of people's lives to the Lord. I hope you'll pray for Vacation Bible School. We, we have the opportunity with more than a thousand children here to tell the story of Jesus, to show them the Bible, to help them to get involved in Scripture, to experience the message that comes from God. Why wouldn't we pray over those opportunities? Why wouldn't we pour out our soul before the Lord? We need to pray fervently. Now, we all know this. We know that 
this youngest generation, Gen Z, nobody knows exactly how to divide up generations, but most people would say this is about the group that was, was born since the time of, of 9-11. So they're 21, 22 years of age and younger. And we all know within the depths of our heart, even if you're in that generation, you know you sense it. But all of us who are older than that generation sense the grief and the pain that that generation is going through because of what the country is going through. Anxiety and fear. Almost unprecedented. By the way, if you're a member of that generation and you see your friends around you and in anxiety and fear, here, I've got good news for you. You don't have to have that. And whatever your generation is characterized by, you don't have to be that way. I'm, I grew up in the baby boomer generation. And I remember when... Same kind of things. And I remember saying, someone saying, whatever your generation is characterized by, you don't have to be that way. You can live for God no matter what you experience in life. You can be the, the, the lighthouse. You can be the one who lives for God. You can be the person who makes him known. You can be the person who says, God, I want to live for you. No matter what the people around me do, I want to honor you. We need to pray. We need to pour out our soul before God. We need to pray fervently for a coming revival. And do you know what? There are signs that that is happening. There are signs that this generation may be the generation that, that saves the country. This may be the generation that honors the Lord. This may be the generation that lifts him up and lives for him and that they are known for exactly that. Let us pour out our soul before the Lord. Let us pray fervently. There is those exact words are found in the, in the epistle of James. James, this James, was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the one who didn't know that Jesus was the Lord until the Lord appeared to him after the resurrection. And James was saved and he became leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he gave us these words, and he talked about prayer. Is anyone among you in trouble? Are you troubled? Let them, what are they to do? Let them pray. He goes through a list of things. Are any sick? Are any hurting? Are any grieving? Let them Pray. In verse 16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I remember memorizing that verse in a different translation. The effective, fervent 
prayer of a righteous person avails much. God wants us to pray fervently. Because when we pray fervently, we get not just what we can get, but we get what God can do in us. So he gives us an example, and it's Elijah who lived a couple of hundred years after Samuel. And the Bible says that Elijah was a great prophet of God, and he prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain. And then he prayed that it would rain, and and the, the rain came. He prayed fervently before the Lord, and we should pray fervently as well. By the way, do you know what happens when you pray? Well, God hears our prayer always. And sometimes that prayer comes, that prayer is answered instantaneously. And sometimes it is answered a long time afterwards. A few months ago, a woman came to me and she said, my husband came to know the Lord and I am so excited. And I think she said, I've been praying for him for 30 years. And then she reminded me and she encouraged me and she said, don't ever give up in prayer, but pray fervently. Do you know what happens when you pray? You get changed. Did you pick up the last verse that we read a few minutes ago? Hannah said, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Eli said, may the Lord grant that which you have asked. She said, may your servant find favor. She's talking about herself. May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then listen to these words. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Her prayer, her pouring out her soul before the Lord had blessed her. And she went away with her face different. That's what Paul said to us. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. It was Paul's way of saying that that you can pray about everything. Most of us never say, oh, this is too big for God, I can't pray. But do you know what we do say? We say this is too little for God and I shouldn't be praying. Paul said, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God and the peace of God that is beyond anybody's comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he comes to speak to us and guide us when we pray fervently. But there's a second thing that we need to do, and that is we need to live devotedly. That's how Hannah lived, and that's how her son Samuel lived after her. When you look at all of this, you you recognize again that the decisions you make today will affect tomorrow, and it will affect you for years to come. 
So we need to pray. We need to pour out our soul before the Lord. We need to ask God to guide us. If you're in Generation Z, you need to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with my life? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to serve you? We need to pour out our soul before God, and we need to live devotedly for him, knowing that what we do today will affect our days to come. It's amazing. Hannah, for years, prayed for a child, prayed for a son, and God blessed her and gave her that son. But before she knew that she was going to have a child, she prayed, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you so that all the days of his life, he will serve you and he will honor you and he will be devoted to you all the days of his life. She said, and no razor will ever be put on his head. Remember, there was a Nazarite vow, like Samson, where you would not cut the hair. And that's what she is saying. He will make a vow to the Lord, and I will make a vow to the Lord. But then what did she do? Well, she didn't go back to Shiloh I'm going to say for three years. But in three years, she went back when the child was weaned. That wouldn't be like in our day, but it was in their day. And she goes back and she brings him to Eli, the priest. And he says, she says, this is the child for whom I prayed. This is the answer to God, to my prayer. And I give him back. To you. Now think about it. Grieving, but giving the child to the Lord and rejoicing. That's what happens when you live devoted to the Lord. Sometimes you and I look at missionaries who are halfway around the world and work in countries where we don't dare use the the name of the country. We just say Southeast Asia or something along those lines. And we, we act as if it is the worst thing that could ever happen. But those people who have been called of God and go there to work cannot think of anything greater in life than what they are doing. That's what happens when you are devoted to the Lord. Your greatest blessing will come when you are obedient to God. The obedience to God and blessings, pouring out your soul to God and blessings go hand in hand. What does God want us to do? How do we we go from where we are to where he wants us to be? We, We seek him. We seek God himself. The greatest thing that can happen in prayer is for us to meet God. 
The greatest prayer is when we pray, God, I want to know you. What did Paul say? What was the goal of his life? Paul's goal was that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We're to be people who seek the Lord. I love the prophet Jeremiah because uh, Jeremiah had such an amazing personality and such a devotion to God and such a commitment and faithfulness to God. Here's what he says. He said, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. We know all three groups. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercise kindness and justice and righteousness, for in these things I delight. What does God want? God wants us to know him. I would suggest that the greatest need of our lives is to know God. I would suggest that the greatest purpose of prayer is that we might meet him in prayer, and that he might not just hear what we say, but we might hear what he says. Seek God. There's another passage in Jeremiah. I'm going to preach on it sometime soon. It's Jeremiah 2, 13. God says this, my people have committed two sins. Now, immediately at that point, my guess is things are popping into your mind. What, what are their sins? Maybe we would think of idolatry. That was certainly a problem. Maybe we would think of immorality. That was a problem. Maybe we would think of greed or selfishness or self-centeredness. Well, what does God say? My people have committed two sins. What are they? Number one, they have forsaken me. Is there anything worse in life than forsaking God? Where do you fit into that? Is that where you are in life? I'm doing things my way. I'm living my life. I'm leaving God out of my life. I have forsaken him. I've gone off in my own way. They've done two evils. One, they have forsaken me, and the other one is very similar to it. They've done their own thing. They have dug for themselves. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they dug wells for themselves. Can you imagine what it was like to live out of a cistern? with whatever would be at the bottom of that pit compared to living next to a spring with living water. They've forsaken me. I am the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, and those cisterns leak. What value is that? You and I need to seek God, 
And the fourth thing we need to do is to offer ourselves to God, the God who delivers, the God who cares, the God who loves us, the God who gave his son for us, the God who created us and knows knows who we are and how we were formed and who understands us and loves us in spite of all of it. God calls us to offer ourselves to him in complete devotion. If you've forsaken the Lord, God calls us to confess our sins and to repent and to give our lives unto him. God calls us to to say, God, I want to pour out my soul before you. I want to know who you are, and I want to live for you. And I want to ask you to do that today. Sometimes we come to church and, you know, it's just an exercise of spending 60 or 65 minutes and, and then we're through and we, we go to the next week and we, we leave God out of our lives. Isn't the greatest need that we have to let God into our lives and to acknowledge Him in all of our ways that He may direct our paths. I want to ask you to offer yourself to God, to surrender unto Him, and to make public decisions, to come and talk with the pastor and let that pastor help you as you seek to be in touch with the God who created you and the God who loves you. Let's pray together. And when the prayer is completed, if you would come, make those decisions for God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for reminding us of what matters in life. Thank you for reminding us that you created us and loved us and gave your son for us. God, now I pray that you would draw people to yourself to live for you to turn away from forsaking you and to embrace you with all their heart. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together, please. The music has begun. The pastors are going to be here at the front to help you with those important decisions that God is leading you to make.